0: Welcome to the May 18th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, patients with chronic ITP have clonal expansions of a specific subset of CD8 T-cells called terminally differentiated effector memory T-cells, or TEMRA. These cells expand when the platelet count is low, persist for years, and are more prevalent in patients with refractory disease, suggesting a potential therapeutic target. Up next, for patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphomas, use of a so-called dark zone signature, previously referred to as the double-hit signature, could help refine prognosis. In a real-world population, the dark zone signature identified a subset of patients with inferior clinical outcomes and a shorter diagnosis to treatment interval. Finally, rethinking the role of hematopoietic stem cells following physiologic emergencies, such as acute inflammation and blood loss. New research shows that regeneration of blood proceeds without a substantial contribution from primitive HSCs, suggesting that they may only be needed in case of extreme distress. Let's turn to our first research article, which is entitled, The Role of CD8-positive T-cell Clones in Immune Thrombocytopenia The first author is Omna Malik of Imperial College London in the United Kingdom. Immune Thrombocytopenia, or ITP, is an acquired autoimmune disorder with increased morbidity and mortality due to bleeding, fatigue, and treatment-related complications. However, there remains a lack of diagnostic and prognostic markers to help in guiding treatment. ITP is often thought of as a disease driven by the binding of autoantibodies to platelet-surface antigens. However, antiplatelet antibodies are frequently difficult to detect, do not predict treatment responses, and B-cell-directed therapies are not effective in many patients. Indeed, evidence suggests that antibody-independent mechanisms of thrombocytopenia, such as T-cells, are likely to play an important role in ITP pathogenesis. For example, CD4-positive T-cells play a key role in the initiation and maintenance of ITP, and defective activity of T-regulatory cells helps to drive autoimmunity in this disorder. So what about CD8-positive T-cells, the subject of this research article? Generally speaking, we know cytotoxic CD8-positive T-cells are a crucial component of the adaptive immune system, and in the context of ITP, it's been suggested that CD8-positive T-cells contribute to the destruction of platelets and megakaryocytes. However, little is known about the specific role of CD8-positive T-cells in ITP pathogenesis in humans and the relative contribution of different CD8-T-cell subsets. That prompted Malik and co-authors to look for CD8-positive T-cell clones and explore CD8-positive T-cell-mediated platelet destruction in patients diagnosed with primary ITP. They examined peripheral blood CD8-positive T-cell subsets in ITP patients and age-matched controls using a variety of techniques. These included immunophenotyping, next-generation sequencing of T-cell receptor genes, single-cell immune profiling, and functional assays of T-cells and platelets. Overall, they divided CD8-positive T-cells into four categories—naive T-cells, central memory T-cells, effector memory T-cells, and, important to the findings of the paper— terminally differentiated effector memory T-cells, often called TEMRA. Deep sequencing of the T-cell receptor revealed an expansion of TEMRA T-cell clones among the patients with ITP. The cells expressed the combination of intracellular interferon gamma, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and granzyme B, all together defining them as TEMRA cells. These cells were found in significantly higher quantities in ITP patients as compared to controls. Those Temer cells were primed for killing, Malik and co-authors write in their paper, and showed no features of T-cell exhaustion. Compared to naive CD8-positive T-cells, the Temor cells had reduced TIM3 and no change in PD-1 expression, both pointing toward continued activation. The Temor cells were long-lived and expanded as platelet counts fell. In two patients with chronic ITP followed with longitudinal sampling, the expanded clones were found to persist over the course of several years. Also in these patients, there was an inverse correlation between platelet count and Temra cells. Of note, the T-cell clonal expansion was especially pronounced in patients with disease that was refractory, meaning the patients had chronic ITP for more than a year and had failed at least two prior therapies. To explore whether CD8 T-cells could interact with platelets, the investigators utilized in vitro model systems, including a microfluidics model of venous blood flow and ex vivo co-culture experiments. They found that in patients with ITP, CD8-positive T-cells could bind to and form aggregates with autologous platelets, and this could be inhibited through MHC class one blockade. The CD8-positive T-cell fraction also released interferon gamma and cytotoxic granules, and promoted platelet activation and apoptosis. These results support T-cell receptor-mediated autoimmune platelet destruction by activated clonal CD8-positive T-cells. In a commentary, Alan Lazarus of the Canadian Blood Services in Toronto and John Semple of Lund University in Sweden say that this study provides convincing proof that Temer cells are present at significantly higher numbers in ITP patients as compared to controls. Furthermore, they said, the study clearly demonstrate that these cells show characteristics of activation without any evidence of T-cell exhaustion. Such observations are important, according to the commentary authors, as these terminally differentiated memory cells would have cytotoxic ability and the capacity to expand and mount an attack on platelets and megakaryocytes. The in vitro studies described by Malik and co-authors did not specifically look at Temra cells. However, Lazarus and Semple say it is most probable that those cells played a role in platelets and or megakaryocyte lysis. The finding that temer cells are more prevalent in patients with refractory ITP suggests that they may be an attractive target for therapy. It's also tempting to wonder whether temer cells may be playing other roles in ITP. Intriguingly, studies have shown that CD8-positive temer cells are present in patients with neurocognitive disorders, and many patients with ITP experience neurocognitive symptoms. Thus, Lazarus and Semple end their commentary with a question. What exactly are these Temer cells doing? Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. The next research article is entitled Molecular Determinants of Clinical Outcomes in a Real-World Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma Population, and the first author is Walid Al-Dwahi of the Center for Lymphoid Cancer, BC Cancer, in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. We know that diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, is an aggressive but curable disease for many, but not all, patients. Perhaps two-thirds of patients are cured by RCHOP, but for those who relapse or are refractory to frontline treatment, outcomes are poor. That's led to intense efforts over the past two decades to identify prognostic or predictive biomarkers that could guide therapeutic strategies. Cell of origin classification created the foundations for this endeavor, linking the biologic characteristics of the tumor cells. Using gene expression profiling, the majority of DLBCL can be dichotomized into the Germinal Center B Cell Like Subgroup, or GCB, and the Activated B Cell Like Subgroup, or ABC. The GCB subtype is associated with better outcomes, including a three year rate of progression free survival following RCHOP that's 15 to 25 percent higher than for ABC DLBCL. More recently, recurrent genetic alteration patterns have further refined the molecular subtypes. For example, about 8% of DLBCLs are reclassified as double-hit high-grade B-cell lymphoma. This is based on detection of MYC and BCL2 and or BCL6 rearrangements, usually done by fluorescence in situ hybridization, or FISH. In the latest classification systems, high-grade double-hit B-cell lymphoma with rearrangement of BCL2 is also recognized as a distinct entity based on its gene expression profile, which is referred to as the double-hit expression signature. These reclassifications are a step forward yet they still don't fully explain the variations between patients in response to RCHOP. And still today, more than 30% of tumors remain unclassified. That's all relevant background for the present study by al duahi and colleagues, who sought to describe clinical outcomes by molecular subgroup in a real-world population of DLBCL patients in British Columbia. They included 1,149 patients diagnosed between 2005 and 2010 with de novo DLBCL, not otherwise specified or double hit high grade BCL with DLBCL morphology. They evaluated biopsies using FISH, immunohistochemistry, and digital gene expression profiling to categorize DLBCLs. A total of 804 patients in the study population had available gene expression profiling data. Of those patients, 42% were classified as GCB, 36% as ABC, 10% as unclassified. The remaining 12% were positive for the double-hit gene expression signature, and of those, 97% had germinal center B cells as the cell of origin, while 3% were unclassified. A key finding of this research article is that the double-hit signature goes beyond HGBCL to identify dark zone lymphomas. The dark zone in germinal centers gets its name because it is tightly packed with dividing B cells, and so looks dark under the microscope. Dark zone B cells are undergoing mutations that modify their antigen receptors, whereas surrounding light zone B cells are undergoing selection for the highest affinity receptors. The researchers noticed that for the double-hit signature positive cases with available FISH data, only 38% were high-grade BCL lymphoma with BCL2 rearrangement. They also knew from previous research that the double-hit signature aligns with germinal center dark zone gene expression. Those observations prompted researchers to assess patients with Burkitt lymphoma, the archetypal dark zone lymphoma. Strikingly, of 55 Burkitt lymphoma profiles, all were positive for the double-hit signature. Based on these observations, the researchers renamed the double-hit signature as the dark zone signature, recognizing that it identifies aggressive B-cell lymphomas with a common gene expression phenotype reflecting the germinal center dark zone. So what impact did these molecular signatures have on real-world outcomes? Dark zone positive had the poorest outcomes— including a 2-year overall survival of just 57%. By contrast, GCB DLBCL that was not dark zone positive had excellent outcomes, with 2-year overall survival of 89%, and ABC DLBCL had a 2-year overall survival of 71%. Moreover, in high-grade B-cell lymphomas with MYC and BCL2 rearrangements, 23% did not express the dark zone signature. These patients also had favorable outcomes comparable to patients with DLBCL, not otherwise specified. Investigators also looked at the diagnosis-to-treatment interval, which was significantly shorter in patients with molecular subgroups associated with poor outcomes. This likely contributes to their underrepresentation in clinical trials because the typical enrollment-associated delays select against these patients. In a commentary, Boke Ylstra and Daphne de Jong of Amsterdam UMC in the Netherlands say that these findings demonstrate that the double-hit signature, now dubbed the dark zone signature, has strong prognostic value. The field may need to reflect on what is the most meaningful method for classifying DLBCL. The available options include gene expression profiling, genetics, and epigenetics. According to Ylstra and de Jong, The current study argues for the use of a gene expression profiling approach to separate GCB, ABC, and dark zone signature positive cases. However, they added, an approach combining the strengths of expression signatures with next generation sequencing might be warranted, especially since gene expression profiling doesn't necessarily provide any insights into potential treatment targets. Altogether, the findings by Alduahi and co authors provide further direction to refine the classification of aggressive B cell lymphomas. In a large, real world cohort, use of the dark zone signature distinguished a subset of GCB DLBCL patients with differences in outcomes and diagnosis to treatment times. Those observations could help inform further work in DLBCL clinical trial design and could improve selection of patients for treatment intensification. The final article is titled, Regeneration Following Blood Loss and Acute Inflammation Proceeds Without Contribution of Primitive HSCs. The first author is Clara M. Munz of the Institute for Immunology at TU Dresden in Dresden, Germany. Hematopoietic stem cells, or HSCs, are multipotent cells that sit at the top of the hematopoietic hierarchy, are capable of self-renewal, and have the unique ability to give rise to all types of blood and immune cells and when transplanted, HSCs are capable of reconstituting a full hematopoietic system. In humans, the hematopoietic system pumps out hundreds of billions of blood cells each day, an enormous undertaking. The current thinking is that all these cells are coming from HSCs that may be only one millionth of all productive clones. The massive steady-state output of mature blood cells is made possible by hard-working progenitor cells, which also can contribute to native hematopoiesis throughout the lifespan, as recent research in mice shows. While HSCs in mouse models remain relatively dormant during adult steady-state hematopoiesis, it's thought that during times of acute demand, such as with blood loss or infection, HSCs are rapidly activated in order to boost output of blood cells in emergency hematopoiesis. Yet most of what we know of HSCs are from studies where these cells were evaluated at homeostasis. What actually happens in an emergency state? In the present study, Munz and co-investigators studied HSC activity under hematopoietic emergency situations following physiologic stimuli. To do this, they used mouse models of cell fate mapping and proliferation tracking. The former uses FGD5-driven inheritable expression of a red fluorescent protein to mark a subset of HSCs whose fate can subsequently be tracked. And in other experiments, doxycycline was used to transiently induce expression of green fluorescent protein-tagged histone 2. The subsequent dilution of this label by cell division was used to follow proliferation. Somewhat surprisingly, these models demonstrated little, if any, contribution of HSCs to enhanced blood cell output under conditions of acute stress. Mice were subjected to inflammatory stimulation with either LPS, GCSF, or PIPC, a synthetic RNA that mimics viral infection and induces interferons. However, the experiments indicated that HSCs only marginally contribute to the increased production of mature blood cells under these conditions. And extensive depletion of red blood cells using phenylhydrazine or platelet depletion using antibodies also did not activate proliferation or differentiation of HSCs. By contrast, increased HSC input appears to be warranted under more serious conditions such as myeloablative stress. But even in this setting, only a minority differentiated into their immediate progeny. They speculate that primitive HSCs may slowly differentiate to continually rejuvenate progenitor pools, and that acute stress only results in a minor uptick in this process. As a result, most perturbations must be compensated for mainly through increased self-renewal and contribution of progenitors. A commentary was provided by Erez El-Fazi and Roy Gazis of Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. They agree with the author's conclusions, saying this study shows that HSCs have a negligible contribution to new blood cell development during hematopoiesis following physiologic emergency situations. That corroborates data from another newly published study, which also makes the point that emergency hematopoiesis does not depend on HSCs. In that study, which also used fate-mapping techniques, regeneration following sepsis was tied to multipotent progenitors, but not to hematopoietic stem cells. So what exactly is the role of HSCs in emergency situations? Here's one interesting way to think about it. In their commentary, Elfazi and Ghazid described HSCs as quote, senior doctors on call, unquote. When all is clear, they're going home to preserve potency. In the case of a manageable emergency, you may call and wake them up, but it's only when a major crisis occurs that they will actually show up on your doorstep to help. Ultimately, the commentary authors say, this study calls for a change in our concepts of emergency hematopoiesis, and more work is needed, for example, to look at markers of HSC activation following perturbations. That may lead to useful interventions, either to amplify hematopoiesis when urgently needed, or conversely, to curb activation in order to preserve HSC function over a lifetime. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.